0: For joining us again on Sit Down Startup Podcast. You know, Tara, I just realized we ask our guests what their favorite coffee shop drink is, but I never ask you what's yours. You know what? You're right. That's so funny. After all this time, we still don't know this about each other. My favorite coffee shop drink is a cappuccino, which I think is something for the mornings, but I drink them in the afternoon too. How about you, Pedro? I say you enjoy your cappuccino whenever, Tara. Mine is a simple latte. Listeners, I hope you have your favorite drink also. As a reminder, if you have a guest you'd like to see on the show, connect with us on Instagram or Twitter at SeedDownStartup. We have a pretty cool episode today that is a bit different from the ones you all may be used to. Zendesk and Pendo partner to do a virtual event on how to find, understand, and measure your product market fit. If you have started or led a startup, you know how important getting product market fit is. We invited Eric Boudouche, co-founder at Pendo, and Mike Gozo, VP of Sunshine Conversations at Zendesk, to talk about this. Eric and Mike are both SaaS entrepreneurs and had great insights on this topic. Are you ready? Let's sit down and start up.
1: Awesome. Hello, everybody, and thank you all for joining us on our webinar, How to Find, Understand, and Measure Your Product Market Fit with uh, speakers from Pindo and Zendesk. We're super excited. We have some awesome content lined up for you all, and we're really excited to share it with you all. So my name is Tyler Crumpler. I'm on the marketing team here at Pindo, and I'll be your moderator today. So with that, I'm going to pass things
2: over to our amazing speakers, Mike Gozo at Zendesk and Eric Bodick at Pindo. Mike, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure. Thanks, Tyler. Um, so my name is Mike Godzo. I am a VP of product at Zendesk, and I take care of everything that we do on the messaging side. Uh, before Zendesk, I led two startups, both acquired uh, the most recent one, Smooch, that Zendesk bought, um, was a platform for building messaging focused on developers. Think of it kind of like a Twilio, but before Twilio was really ready for uh, for messaging. So I'll you know, try and bring a lot of uh, points of view on uh, how product market fit affects B2B uh, software companies in particular.
1: Hi, my name's Eric Bodick. I'm one of the co-founders of Pendo. Uh, I've had a pretty diverse background at Pendo, Uh, ran marketing for the first four years of Pendo, took over as our chief evangelist and helped build out our external community uh, and our brand presence. And currently um, I'm GM of our adopt business unit, which is a white label OEM training product that we sell in conjunction with our software partners. So it's kind of my, my first step into, uh, a really strong revenue role. It's been a great experience. Before that, I uh, did a bunch of startups and public companies. So I was a uh, VP of marketing for a public company in the Valley. Also did a couple of startups, both uh, out in San Francisco and Pittsburgh, uh, ex-Carnegie Mellon alum, well, Carnegie Mellon alum, not ex, <laughs> uh, and now live in Raleigh, North Carolina. So I've traveled around the country too. It's been interesting seeing how product's done at different places too, right? There's distinct differences in product management, I think, between places like Pittsburgh, San Francisco, uh, and the East Coast. So with that, I think today we want to talk about product market fit. Mike, do you want to kick this off by explaining you know, the Andreessen quote here? Absolutely.
2: You know, finding product market fit is probably the, one of the most important things that you're going to focus on, um, whether you're running a startup and involved in, in the trenches or you're part of a bigger company that's bringing something to market. Um, you're you're going to obsess about not only does your product do the thing that you designed it to do, but can it reach the market and satisfy their needs? So can you hit that intersection of product solving the problem and delivering value to a customer in a way that is you know repeatable and you can you can grow into a sustainable thing? Um, really great post by Mark Andreessen on this, and he's done a lot of writing on what product market fit is and what it isn't. Uh, So maybe we'll go to the next slide, Eric, unless you've got anything to add, there's some.
1: No, perfect. I I mean, there's a lot of different ways to think about product market fit. And and some people will will say, does it even exist, right? Uh, uh, One of my friends and colleagues, April Dunford, likes to say that there's no such thing as product market fit. I believe there is, but I also believe that you need to think about product market fit, not necessarily as this checkbox, right? You just don't achieve product market fit and it's all over and done with. It, it's kind of like, it, it's something that you that you know you have when you're in it, uh, but it's also something that changes over time. So when we talk about what product market fit is and how we define that, it, it's almost like this 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 time when the customer and product are in agreement, right, Or uh, your customers become your sales and marketing people. Uh, there's a great uh, video out there on Crossing the, the Chasm that I used to, uh, when I lectured to Mill, and I was always show, and they were talking, and they had this guy dancing and he's dancing all by himself. Uh, and he's dancing really weird and it's kind of funny and people are pointing at him and chuckling and, and then he just keeps it up. And soon there's like another guy that joins him. And I think of that as like the first customer, right? That That's really there. Uh, and then you see, like, you know, there's not quite product market fit there, but they're starting to get people watching that and thinking, like, there's something really here. And then you start getting a couple other people there, and those are the early adopters. And the next thing you see is that there's a ton of people dancing. And now, all of a sudden, you have this product market fit. You can see people, like, feeling like, holy, holy jeezum. Uh, I don't know if I can swear on this webinar so holy Jesus um, uh, I need to jump in there. I need to be involved in this movement and that that's kind of like one of the things I think about is that first step of product market fit where all of a sudden like customers are like, why aren't we doing this? Uh, and that's when you know you have something. I, I don't know Mike what, what what else would you add there?
2: Yeah, I think that that's a great part great point. you'll see that customers are beating down the doors and want this but sometimes it's not so obvious especially when you're in b2B, or you're in something which doesn't necessarily have mass appeal necessarily. Um, you know, you might be building something for the enterprise or for a developer market, and what you're going to see is that while you might not have people beating down your door because you're you're building an expensive or hard to understand piece of software, um, experts in the field will start talking about it. It's going to start becoming a standard. You're going to see that your customers are coming because two developers shared a beer and you know one of them spoke about a technology that they were using that revolutionized how they were doing their job. So someone else picked it up and you really get this this flywheel going. And a, a lot of it is really looking for and and really feeling that this uh, thing is a chain reaction that's out of control and that, that's ultimately what it feels like. And I think, you know, another piece of thinking about that, that flywheel and that chain reaction is that it can come and go. And it, there's gonna be a lot of factors both in changes of the market. You can think like technology landscape changing or changes of who your target customer is as you're trying to to grow your business and reach a reach a larger market, what worked at, you know, one moment in your product's, uh, products life cycle might not necessarily work in the next. And, you know, as, um, as a business, you're probably asking yourself all the time, when should you reassess product market fit? When is, you know, it's time to rest on your laurels and juice the machine versus when is it time for you to go and, and really go back to that experimentation that got you to um, to a point where you felt confident that your product was ready uh, the answer is you're you're always going to be working on this you know congratulations here product manager this is now uh, this is now your job and it's probably what makes this uh, most exciting
1: yeah I, I mean <laughs> I think about this and and we were chatting earlier about this whole love analogy right uh, product market fit you know it might be an interesting analogy to think about it as love like you know when you're in it um but people also fall out of love and you can also you know you can also lose product market fit i, I do think that happens um it's so it's not this checkbox and and maybe a great story is like this idea of a horse right uh if we go back you know in time uh pre-cars you know horses had product market fit they they existed right they 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 solved the need for their customers um people were happy for the most part with what horses can do now the competition in this case changed things where a car came about and all of a sudden just changed what market expectations were so that a horse didn't have product market fit necessarily in, in all of those particular markets. So things can change over time. It can change because of competition. It can be changed because of how the market's changing. It can change because of bigger macroeconomic kind of events. So it's something you have, but it's also something you can lose. So when we think about like, you know, the next obvious question is like, when startups are thinking about product market fit, you know, what are they doing to get there? Are they just, you know, throwing a product out there and hoping it works, hoping that customers love it? I mean, I I hope not, right? So, we're really looking at, and and what they should be doing is a lot of experimentation, iterating on what the product does, the features it has, the functionality, uh, and, and pivoting the product as they learn from their customers. So, think of this as a really fast you know, scientific experimentation cycle where you're trying to get a product out there. You think you have something that's gonna fit the needs of your particular market. um, And then you're adjusting based upon uh, usage, based upon customer feedback, based upon a lot of things. And pricing could be one of those factors too. So it's constant feedback on experiments, it's constant innovation, it's constant iteration to going and in, in, in creating that product that fits into a particular market. And some of that is just addressing a different market. Like you might have a product that you're just taking to the wrong market. And if you take a great product and position it in another market, you're going to find that product market fit. So there's, there's a mix of things at play when you're trying to establish that initial product market fit. And like we talked about, that changes it too as your market expands. So this is an iterative cycle. I mean, I think... You know the most one of the most essential things that product people can do is communicate, right? Is be contact, be in contact with their customers, be getting feedback from their customers, be looking at data, um, and then experimenting on that, right? And then and using that as a basis for innovation. So, you know, one of the things Mike then is this: like, how do you balance customer input and, and gut decisions to to do that, right?
2: Yep. No, that's that's a great point, and I think one of the important aspects of finding product market fit that we don't often talk about is the need for uh, call it intellectual honesty right it's really easy when you're building a product and it's your life and you're you've you've put your own identity as a product manager or a founder into defining what it is um you really ignore some of the obvious things that you're obvious signals you're getting whether it's feedback in the customer's own words or dynamics of you know your revenue or whatever other important metrics you're you're tracking around engagement and saying well if I could just do this one thing if I could just build this feature if I could just add this one capability I'll be closer to product market fit um, what what I've seen happen to other startups that I've advised is that they can fall into this trap of um, really circling here and piling you know bad bad investment ideas bad decisions uh, one on top of another because they're not stepping back and remembering that their purpose is really um, to, to really look at where they are um, as a product and make sure that it's meeting um, me- meeting the needs of product market fit by, by questioning the core assumptions. And you really get there, you know, if you're doing that well, what you're gonna start feeling is that um, the market is really pulling this product out of you. Your roadmap is gonna get significantly easier um, in, in one side, because that early base of customers that's just coming and, and you know pulling your product out to them is going to be driving strong requests because they're using it every day to solve an important problem to them. You're going to see those customers talking to one another and, and referring, uh, referring other customers to you. One of the things that we saw quite a bit at Smooch um, was that we were getting a lot of inquiries from investors the minute we started to hit this product market fit threshold. And what was interesting um, was that we weren't out there fundraising. We were in like a closed door state of our business, just building product and growing, but our earliest customers were getting funded by by popular VCs. And when they would ask these these customers of ours, who do you use? What what tech is interesting out there? They'd point at our company. And that was a really big sign to us and say, okay, this this referral engine is, is real and it's hitting many things about our business. Not just our sales, but also, you know, really the core, the core value of the company. Um, and you'll notice that your, you know, it's not that your product is growing exp- exponentially without advertising or without marketing. It's just that your dollars seem to go further. You figured out the message that you want to put out the market to the market that resonates. You figured out how to reach your customers in a great way. So for every dollar you spend um, in advertising in user acquisition. You get a return that is, you know, again, this is going to be relative to your to your uh, segment and your product, but feels feels huge and and off the charts. And that's when, you know, you're really in a position to to claim product market fit and be ready to invest deeper into the business and get to the next stage. Eric, do you have anything to add there? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, just to kind of pile on with some of the things you said, like, because I I was running marketing early in Pendo, right? Uh, All four of our founders had a product background, uh, so we we all couldn't run product. In fact, none of us ended up running product. Uh, But as an aside, so I'm, I'm running marketing and I saw this firsthand where I would be spending dollars on lead gen and I'd be comparing my returns to some of my peers in the industry. And I was getting three or four or five times the amount of you know closed deals out of the same amount of spend, and it wasn't because I was a genius and just this great marketing guy. It was because that you know the, it was so easy to get leads for our product. Uh, and get those referrals, and get people and in, in our customers referring other people, and driving them to the website, and in essence, getting you know free business. Uh, it, it just kind of snowballed. And similar to to Smooch, we saw this with with Pendo in the early days, where we also got VC referrals that would come in that way. Like the reason we got Battery in as as our as our A round, uh, as our you know primary uh, original venture capitalist, uh, was a customer, you know that. One of the people from Battery was talking with you know, one of the companies down in Austin, that was a customer of ours, one of our early customers. And they were like, what do you really like? What, what technology is really cool that you're using? What's making a big impact on your business? And they're like, Pendo. And that, that led, you know, those types of conversations didn't just lead to customers. They led to VC interest. They led to coverage. They led to employees. Uh, so you see, like, when you have this fit, when you have these people really excited about what your product does, when it makes their life easier, uh, they end up becoming great cheerleaders for you. And, and it impacts not just your revenues. It impacts all these different portions of your business, which is which is just awesome. Uh, what I would caution people do, because you know, having talked to some of the, the startups out in the valley from time to time, they're like, "Yeah, when I have product market fit, I don't need salespeople or I don't need marketing," and that's bad. Uh, you know, take, adva- I mean, take advantage of what you have, make those jobs easier for you, but you're still going to need, you know, strong people in those departments. So don't over-rotate on this idea that having a great product is going to do everything for you and solve all of your problems. It definitely helps. It makes everyone better, um, but, but don't over-rotate to, to the point where you're like, oh, I'm getting all this business without any marketing, therefore I don't need to do marketing. Just think about how much better your business would be with, you know, marketing and professional sales and all that kind of stuff.
2: I think that's a really great point just to highlight. When you have product market fit, it's not just that the product is ready for the market, it's really your whole, your whole company. And as a startup, there's probably not much more to the company than the product, but you probably have some beginnings of you know operations and other aspects that are showing. And you have to fire all those cylinders right to make it work. Um, and it, you can't just only obsess about product.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's It's a good indicator for when you're ready to scale. It shouldn't be like, hey, Products working, we're selling it. They're buying it through our website. Therefore, we don't need to do any of these other things. No, it's it's like therefore we can do these other things and instead of going two x. We should over year over year or three x a year over year. I Maybe mean, we're going four or five. Right? It, it's a it's a great factor for thinking about. Okay, now let's really go after this marketplace. So two really interesting examples. Uh, you know, I, I I get to talk about Slack, which is fun. Um, you know, and I'm going back to my Pendo history. I remember early on in Pendo. Um, we were using a Slack competitor and it was primarily used by engineering. Uh, they were trying to get the whole company to use it and just never stuck, right? The UI wasn't quite good enough. It didn't feel like it, it felt like part of your everyday cycle. Uh, there's a lot of little things. Like It's even hard to point to what the big thing was, but it was just a collection of a lot of little things. And then one day someone started using Slack and I, I think it started in the engineering group. And then within like two or three weeks, everyone at the company was on Slack. And we weren't a big company at the time, but I can think the competitor we're using for like three or four, maybe even six months, I don't even know, and it never really caught on. But now all of a sudden, you know, we started using Slack and the UI was so slick and it was so easy to get onboarded and invite other people and set up your own channels, have these communications, have them searchable, find this information, Every little detail, you know, seemed really cool, even the sound back then, which now I have a Pavlovian response to and some people absolutely hate. um, But the sound was just something that is like that old HBO music when the HBO movies are coming on. I'm dating myself here. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, Uh, (laughs) it was just everything about that Slack experience turned our own people into word of mouth you know, marketers for them, they were getting everyone inside of Pendo to use it. And then we were talking about to other companies like, oh, are you using Slack yet for this communication? You know, and at the time, this was really early in Slack, you know, so a lot of people hadn't heard about it yet, but it was like, it it just kind of spiraled. And that whole word of mouth marketing was really, really effective with Slack uh, and kind of, you know, grew, especially through tech, uh, very effectively through that. Uh, Another great story is Netflix. I I think you're going to talk about that one, Mike.
2: Yeah, no Netflix is, is really interesting because if you've been around you know especially in the US and Canada where I am in Montreal we didn't get to benefit from all of Netflix Netflix stories firsthand uh, but they started off as uh, DVDs sent in your in in regular postal mail to your address you pick out a set of DVDs you wanted to watch in that month and send them over to you and you mail them back and it was pretty easy they got a really good base of subscribers they were certainly weren't the behemoth uh, that they uh, they are now, but they were giving Blockbuster and friends a run for their money. To be sure, I think it was around twenty ten or maybe probably more like twenty eleven, where they started to introduce streaming and thinking about splitting off this DVD rental business that they had built from streaming, which was the future. know um, when they when they first did this, they they had a product that arguably had product market fit. Their DVD rentals, and now suddenly they were telling customers that streaming is the future, uh, but they weren't ready. To claim product market fit on that streaming uh, product at the time why was that well one you know consumers had to at the time consume streaming content on a pc or maybe on their phone or a tablet they couldn't do it on the big screen so easily you'd have to hook up hdmi cable whatever other mess uh, was involved there and then internet broadband was there but you know from a, a streaming quality and and um and performance standpoint the core Technology hadn't penetrated enough, and there was all sorts of content restrictions around. Should we make streaming available or not? Uh, they had a ton of negative feedback about the streaming offer at the beginning, but you know, over about a two-year period until they they launched House of Cards, uh, they really got through those problems one at a time and listened to their customers and and you know, positioned streaming correctly as the platform for the future. And that's really when it took off. And now we wouldn't even think about consuming content any other way, it seems, right? Then streaming has become become quite a revolution. So it's, it's a good note that even for a business that seems to be a rocket ship like like Netflix was, and that has that that pull from the market, you need to be thinking about reinventing yourself, um, figuring out what's next, and bringing back the same techniques of experimentation and iteration at all the steps through your journey, not only at the onset. You don't get to rest on your laurels ever.
1: So why do, why does all of this matter? Um... It's a good, good, good question to ask, right? What's important about this? And you know, we all want to address with our products. We all want to start companies. We all want to work for companies that address a really big marketplace. But a large potential marketplace, you know, isn't worth anything unless you can realize a chunk of that market. Unless you get, you know, this this flywheel going. Um, and like I hinted at earlier you know, product market fit is a good point for that springboard for scaling and growth, right? When you feel, when you see these things happening, when you see customers just clamoring for your product, when you see uh, that you're getting feedback, like I would hate it if they take that you take this away from me, uh, that ends up being like a trigger point where you can think like, okay, I have something here that, that the market really loves. Let me push this out aggressively. Let me grow really aggressively, because there are a lot of impacts if you scale too quickly. Right. Um, Mike, you know, talk to me a little bit about like, what are the possible impacts from scaling too quickly?
2: You know, I I touched on a little bit uh, earlier when I was talking about um, when I was talking about intellectual honesty and the bad investment decisions um, that you can you can fall into. Um, if you you put dollars before your business, put dollars ahead of your business being ready to really make um, make the the most of it. So I think one of the core ways is that you end up paying way more for a marginal improvement in your traction. For example, so if you're doing paid acquisition, like Eric was referring to earlier, um, and you haven't really quite figured out your business, you're going to be spending a lot more money to get every one of those deals. On board, and you might actually be growing your customer base at a cost that is negative to you, where you're losing money with every customer that you're bringing on through the uh, through gate because acquisition cost is so high. You know, other things that can happen is you might build out a whole bunch of features to meet um, one client's needs, or uh, to to chase a red herring where um, you know you weren't really ready to to invest that much in product development. And as a result, you'll burn capital that you could have used to keep your business afloat longer, experiment more, and be ready for an opportunity that can be um, more beneficial to your company.
1: Yeah, I also think about it as this rush to sell, right? Like there, sometimes there's this pressure to get revenues, so. You know, you think you're 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 better suited to a market, and the market's ready for you. So you start hiring salespeople, uh, and you want to hire. You don't just want to hire one because, well, one, it's hard to tell—is it the salesperson, is it the product, is it the marketing? You know, so you want to hire a couple, and then you hire a couple, and none of them are making quota, and then they're disgruntled because they're not making money, and so they're looking for jobs, and now you have to replace them. And not only do you have to replace them, but they're like, oh yeah, you don't want to work at XYZ company because you can't, you know, make good money there because the product. Not ready, or the market, or it's too hard to sell. So, you start creating all of these problems for yourself that you don't really need. You can do, you can create, I think, more problems uh, in trying to do things quickly than you you, uh, create and maybe even waiting a little bit too long to scale things up. I mean, you want that balance, but um, if you start doing things too quickly before you're ready to actually scale the business, you know, you end up having to unwind all of this stuff uh, and it creates. it, it 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 dampens that halo that your company might otherwise have, right? You you kind of are a little tarnished, and you have to work your way back from that.
2: Absolutely, you know I'll throw in a personal story from from our my last startup. Uh, we had raised about eight million dollars from investors. We were we were pretty transparent that we didn't know the path to monetization, but we had a guess and we had money in our pocket, so we went out and said, "Okay, we'll test an idea by hiring a team of inside salespeople and have them call up a bunch of businesses and try and push our software." um it didn't work we lost we lost a lot of money but more importantly we lost a lot of time in the process and the the cost the true cost to our business wasn't in um in dollars it was really it was really in terms of of time and missed opportunity and I keep on going back to thinking well how much different would our product have been if we had prioritized learning instead of that rush to sell and that it's a really hard thing to ignore when you're in when you're in the trenches, um, but a good thing to do is always go by your gut and and try and learn before anything else.
1: Yeah, it makes me think too as an entrepreneur because I have similar stories, Mike, about selling too early uh, and sometimes being pressured by investors. Like, well, oh, we need to start selling. You know, like I think we should start selling early, and the market's going to tell us by sales. Um, and so you get pressured into that in some cases. And, and I think it's it's important to have investors that have the same kind of experimentation and product led philosophies. Um, you know, and, and the worst thing too is if you start to get a little bit of traction, right? We've all seen that, like you hire these inside sales people and they get a little bit of traction, but not enough. And you're like, well, maybe we just tweak this a little bit. Maybe if we had this feature or that feature, and then you start getting feature bloat too, because now all of a sudden you're like, oh, this customer says he wants X and he would have bought. So and that's not always true, you know, when you're getting this closed wind feedback. So you start building things that maybe you wouldn't normally have built because you're trying to chase that sale that you lost and it's a data set of one. So you start, you, it is another case of this snowball of, of potentially bad decisions by trying to scale and push product, you know, before you're ready.
2: Absolutely, and I think it's important, also, especially if there's any folks in sales on on the this webinar. I actually think sales can be a really, really important tool for finding product market fit. But it's not hiring a bank of inside salespeople and trying to build a scalable, repeatable machine. Now, what you're really looking for is, um, you know, that that unicorn salesperson who is really got a long-term business development mindset and is going to work with product with your product marketing, with the founding team, ideally a member of the founding team, and is gonna go out there listening to customers and try and, and build this capability up. There's a lot to be said with for someone who has that kind of empathy and that ability to reach out to the market and communicate one-on-one with prospects. So uh, sales absolutely has a role here. And please don't take this as Eric and I, you know, dumping all over sales and saying they're an impediment. They're, they're not, they can be huge partners, but you need to set up that function in the right way and have the right mindset for what they're gonna help achieve at this stage in the business.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I am like I'm a big fan of having sales and scaling sales when it's appropriate and getting the right people. And I think one point you mentioned, Mike, I, I think worked extremely well for me and companies that worked well, which is having the founders sell, right? You know, especially if you have a larger founder team, like we had four at Pendo, three of the four founders were selling. I mean, even though I was running marketing, I think I gave more demos (laughs) in in the beginning of our company than anyone else. I was like booked with like, Hey, let me show you the product. Let me get feedback. Let me get the pitch. And, and I would hear, you know, it helped me with marketing too, because I would hear exactly what people, you know, what people got excited about, what they didn't, uh, you know, what made them want to buy the problems they started talking about in their own business. And it, it just helped in so many different areas. So like having that founder founding team go out and in and, and actually pitch customers and try to sell was hugely influential and helpful in how we molded what, what was the Pendo product in the early days too. So I, I think- you know, you definitely want to be selling and talking to customers. I, I just think you, you don't want to be like, hey, now let's hire a pro- big professional sales team, a bank of SDRs, and like, let's grow scale this until you know, you have that fit. Uh, I do. Uh, and I know there's a lot of engineering and product founders out there that maybe don't like to sell. I, I think like, you got to, that's one of the things you got to break through. It's like, spend some time out there with customers, spend time selling, you're going to learn so much from that.
2: And you'll be surprised at how good you are. I was, I am a technical founder. I was the CTO of Smooch, and I spent, i us say, after we got the product, you know, MVP out the door, my job pivoted to essentially being the best technical salesperson in the company. And you'll be surprised at how good you can you are at this, even if you have that background.
1: Yeah, and it and it and it's inspiring too because you talk to customers and they're like, "Oh, this is great," and it's like. The whole rest of your day, you're like, sweet, you know, it like inspires you to get all things done. And it's just like, it's just awesome. It makes you feel good. It gives you that little adrenaline rush. So uh, moving on to measurement. <laughs> I feel like we could have talked about some of that all day. Uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about how, how to measure product market fit, because we don't want to be out there as like, hey, it's a feeling like love. You're going to know it when you have it, which is kind of true. But there are guideposts out there that, uh, you know you can use the to, to to understand if you're moving towards product market fit um let's, let's talk first about uh the quantitative guideposts so right like we've hinted about acquisition if it's if you're finding it's really easy uh to acquire new customers that's a great sign you want to see these low acquisition costs um if you find that you know activation is really easy meaning like your customers are signing up for it maybe for a free trial and they're turning this on really quick you don't have to push people about installing it you don't have to follow up with them they're getting the, this activation process is really short you know that's a good sign um revenue right obvious indicator people are paying for the product but the most important thing in my opinion is not the initial revenue because if you do a really good job marketing you know if you're like Mike out there and just a really good at selling to some of these early adopters you know you might be able to get people that are on the fence to buy. What becomes really interesting to look at, and you won't know this as early if you're doing annual contracts, you'll know it quickly if you're doing monthly, uh, is this turn factor. Because one of the biggest indicators I think of of having a, a strong fit is that customers aren't churning, right? They're just not churning at all in the early days because you have you know you're you're getting those early adopters, you're getting that early market, uh, and they're probably really tight fits. So you're not seeing a lot of that churn, and that's probably a bigger indicator um, than even this initial revenue and this initial sale. It's that retention. It's that churn. Next is qualitative. You want to run with that, Mike?
2: Absolutely. Um, I'm a big fan of using qualitative feedback uh, to establish to establish this, especially early on. You know, like I mentioned earlier. Since product market fit isn't binary, it's possible that you can have it even in your early days and have a moment that signals you should be investing more. And you might not be getting clean metrics yet that you can really uh, use to drive decision making. So the the, the most important thing that you should rely on and something that I bring in all my teams, whether it's at my startups or now at Zendesk, where I manage many more people, is really taking in customer feedback as as the most important thing that we do in, in a product organization. So, a couple of things matter here. First, is you need to store it all in some place that's centrally accessible that everybody can have access to, and you need to get into the habit. And this is a place where you need to beat your sales team, uh, you know, over the head with. They need to be following um, the format in the system that you've um, you put in place to document and capture this feedback. Ideally, in the customer's own words, as closely as possible, and decorating it with as much context as they can. Then what we do in in our teams is we make sure that every product line has um, a board of the PMs on that product line, along with a rotation between a solutions engineer and a salesperson, as well as a representative from marketing, who look through the newly received raw feedback every single week. They take a look at this feedback, they try and extract the core themes and ideas without like getting into specific you know build requests, but like what is the pro- what's the problem this customer is actually facing. If we need clarification, we task sales or we have the product person to reach out and get that clarification if it's interesting. And it becomes so important to keep this top of mind and in on top of um, everybody's radar. And you're going to see that the type of feedback that you get changes with where you are in that product market fit spectrum. When you don't have it, you're going to get you know, pretty silent customers. It'll be um, it'll be like me talking on this webinar where I'm speaking and I don't have any idea of what feedback I'm getting from the audience because it, it's unknown to me. Um, and you wonder, like, are they paying attention? Are they using it? Or you know, are they engaged? Uh, but when you have product market fit, you see this feedback come in in droves, and it comes in from all sides. All sides, and in managing it becomes a, a really important task that you do. So you'll learn a lot just by taking a look at the quantity and the the types of things you're getting coming in that that feedback um, that feedback loop. Now, some more traditional things you can use that maybe even start to look quantitative. Are, are you know survey questions like NPS and looking at how many of your customers are promoters versus the tractors, obviously something that you're going to want to see. You can't read too much into it because as a metric, it has its shortcomings, but it is it is interesting to get a barometer um, in terms of the referability of your product and how, much, how well people are willing to rep it. Uh, one that I've used in the past and has given me a bit of a red herring at times actually, but I still believe in it, is asking customer bases um, how they would feel if they could no longer use your product. Now, this is is really valuable because if your product's great and it matters to people, they're going to be really, really disappointed. And I think the the threshold that people use to talk about this question often is saying forty percent of your base should feel this way. Uh, people should feel really sad if they can't use your stuff anymore. Um, it, it's tricky for a couple of reasons. One is when you ask the question, especially when you um, when you ask it, call it in an email or part of a Google form, people read into it. And they start saying, wait, are you taking this product away? Every time I've used this product, this question on the survey, I get some, you know, non-negligible set of customers who come back to me and are are legitimately afraid that I, I am going to kill the product and that, you know, that's, that's what we're doing. The other aspect is sometimes what your customers think is your product is not necessarily what you think is your product. And it, it's it's a tough thing to articulate, but you'll find that for, um, you know, if a customer is using, call it like a subset of functionality of what you're doing, or they're applying it to an industry or a problem that you really don't have eyes on and don't really understand, um, you might be thinking, hey, great, you know, based on my understanding of what I built and who my customer is, I have product market fit. But those customers that said that they would feel disappointed if it would go away are using it for something completely different or have their own perception about it. So really, really important that whenever you look at some of these aspects, you try and color it with as much context, uh, context as possible. And then you know, on the referral and, and review, review side, this is again, something you're going to see. Like you'll you'll notice um, in your acquisition funnel, the source of your, your customers, you'll get a sense of how it's happening. Um, you'll start seeing, you know, review sites are one place. If you're in, in more in the enterprise space, like, like I've been, uh, you'll have analysts that are coming to you inbound with questions because they hear it or because they have inquiries that their customers are making. Uh, And again, you have to take all of this stuff with a bit of a grain of salt because there's all sorts of schemes and payola and weirdness that happens. Uh, But you do have a directional indication of where you're going and, and how it matters there. So Let's drill drill in a little bit more on uh, the importance of customer feedback. Um, Yeah, I think the questions you're trying to answer are primarily who the customer is. You want to figure out what that segment of the population is like. You want to know as much about about them in terms of what's their job, where do they sit in the decision-making process around using your tool or not. What are their biggest pain points? So what are the the problems that you're solving well now? And what are the pain points that still exist that we might be blind to? Um, How are they using your product? You wanna go over the shoulder wherever you can or get real life examples here. One is because it's useful for you in building your own marketing, your own case studies and talking about your product, but also because you wanna build that empathy with them and make sure that the features you're building, the the design and overall goodness of, of what you're shipping is in line with what your customers um, your customers are expecting. And, and you can really dig into this, this more and more, right? Like ultimately it becomes an important place to source ideas for your roadmap. It becomes an important place to design your campaigns when you're going out and doing advertising and more. Um, and also an important way to figure out when you're penetrating a new account, when you're going and actually doing outbound sales to understand how to navigate that organization, how to you know, get a cold email or a cold call reply to, all of this comes from knowledge and the knowledge of the customer that you get from this actual discussion and this feedback collection really helps influence this. But one caveat here or a couple of caveats here that really matter is again, making sure that you don't treat all feedback as equal and the customers matter a lot to your business. Uh, and, you know, they're not all created equal. I, I want to give that quote from Animal Farm, but I, I it's escaping me right now, but there is a good Orwell quote on that, right? Um, you know, you want to look at people that are using your product every day, every month, that really depend on it versus those that have flirted with it, but haven't really embraced it. And look at those two groups differently and really think about how you want to take that feedback and how you want to affect what you're doing. You want to look at how much people are paying for you. Just you know to understand whether whether them paying you is could be a sign of um, the relative importance of the problem for them and might make you zero in there. Uh, but again, this is gonna depend on your business model, right? Sometimes your free customers, you really want to uh, pay attention to, particularly if you're looking at making sure you have a compelling path to get them uh, to convert to paid or, or otherwise. Um, Eric, do you have anything to add on on customer feedback from a Pendle perspective?
1: Yeah, I wanted to double down first on segmentation. Right, like uh, I think it's really important that you segment your feedback and and you're able to segment it across a number of different uh, variables. Like, if your primary user is product manager, your secondary users are customer success and engineering is just there to install. If you're getting say. Uh, you know NPS from all of those, and just looking at the overall NPS number, it, it's in some ways misleading, right? So you want to be able to break that down and say, like, what's my NPS with the product managers who are my primary users? What's my NPS with customer success who are my secondary users? You know, what's my NPS with engineering who's just involved to install it? Not that you don't want to keep the engineers happy, but you you want to take that that NPS that score and you want to understand it in relation to you know, their involvement in your actual product, right? That, that's really, I think really, really important uh, that we highly emphasize that. The second thing is, is a lot of these metrics, NPS is a great one, is like, you know, the absolute value isn't necessarily as much as important as the trend, right? NPS numbers are gonna vary from industry to industry. Uh, your customers, people are gonna give different feedback. Uh, based upon kind of who they are, what types of people they are, what segments they fit in. But what's really important is how it trends. Uh, if you see your NPS number going down, that's an indicator something's going wrong, right? If you see that number continue to go up as you add features or evolve your product or, or experiment, that's a good thing. Uh, so I would concentrate on trending in a lot of these factors more than anything else. Going to that, you know, as I like to call it, the superhuman question. I'm not sure if Rahul and superhuman f- first did it, but this like, how, what would you do if I took away your product, right? Um, the trending of that is really important, right? As you're evolving that early product, as you're changing that, uh, if that number is increasing dramatically, it feels like you're you're in the right direction. So use these these qualitative metrics as guideposts. Use this feedback as guideposts. If you had a lot of negative feedback about your user experience, and you're getting positive stuff in the future, that means you're going in the right direction. So trending, I think, is something to keep keep an eye on even more so than the absolute numbers.
2: I think that's a great point, and it leads us well into the next topic. You know, focusing on trends of these. These observations is a really interesting way to realize that product market fit is not a single point in time. Um, you know, we spoke about the Netflix example earlier and and how Reed Hastings transformed that company into um, into what it is today by reinventing itself, and we're all doing that at, at some scale in our businesses. And there's a, on the next slide, I've got a, a good graph from a a seminal call it product and marketing. Um, a book called Crossing the Chasm that I think illustrates pretty well why trends in these measurements are what's important and um, the need to to shift how you think about the product and the market over time. The way this graph basically uh, works is it's talking about five different groups of customers, the innovators that will, you know, try an alpha product and be the first people in the door playing with the new technology all the way to the majority, which is basically everybody in the laggards who you know are almost the Luddites that grudgingly accept the technology at the very end. And What happens to a lot of uh, companies as they're building up products is that they get early success in selling it to people that have a higher tolerance for things that might not work well or for uh, a greater propensity to pick up the newest thing and, and play with it. But they fail to jump over and and make their products appealing for that you know majority of the market where the spoils and the treasures uh, actually uh, actually are so when you're setting out in your product journey or if you find yourself somewhere in the middle of it i think really important to get a sense of where you are and realizing that because the market is changing right that people and then the people that you're selling to is changing as you're trying to grow your business, your product, and that's that's the big P product, right? Not just the set of features you have, but the positioning, the price, how you promote it. All of this is necessarily going to have to be reinvented as you're going through So you, you just cannot say, stay stagnant. And to go back to what Eric was saying, visualizing a lot of these metrics and these uh, qualitative pieces of uh, information as trends will give you a sense of, you know how you're crossing from one type of, of customer base in this in this model to another, they'll get give you a sense of where you're starting to lose product market fit as you're trying to go more and more mainstream, and you will uh, you will necessarily shift your view of of the world and how you build your product. Eric, anything to uh, to drop onto the chasm model?
1: No, I, I think one of the the challenges here is trying to identify and segment early adopters and early majority, right? Um, and some hints I would give is like. If you're selling, if you're a Silicon Valley company or a Bay Area company, uh, and you're selling to other Bay Area companies, you're probably selling to you know, the innovators or the early adopters. So probably a good hint there, you're selling to people like you. Uh, and that can that can lead to some bad habits because you're like, we have something, it's great. And then you start going and selling to like the Fortune 1000 and you're selling to banks and you're selling to people that maybe are the early majority, maybe the late majority, you know, but you're moving to the majority they might have different concerns. So if you're over-rotating and think like everything is great because, you know, the people in the Valley are buying my product. And then you start going out to like, you know, Wall Street or whatever and realize that why aren't they buying, you know, something's wrong with my sales or my marketing, you know, it could be something's wrong with the product. It could be that you've done a good job in fulfilling, you know, fit for these early adopters, these people that are like you, and not a good job for, you know, addressing the traditional market. And it's a hard thing to segment on this but there are ways you can get around that, like this hint of like, hey, if you're selling to people that are just like you, you're probably selling to innovators and early adopters. So one of the things you know that I, I like to see in, in startups, you know, doing some in, in angel investing myself, is that like there's a, a small number of really, really happy customers. It doesn't have to be a small number, but the important thing is the second part of that: really, really happy customers. Um, you know, it's, it's much better having 100 customers or 100 users that really love your product and are like sitting at the bar and like, oh, yeah, I'm using this product. It's amazing. Or like if they're on my product love podcast and I ask the guest, like, what's your favorite product? They're one of the ones that get mentioned. Right. You want those people that are are, are saying, like, I really love this thing. It's more important, I think, to have those hundred people that love it then those 10,000 people that are like grudgingly like, yeah, it solves a need, I kinda like it because it's easy to build off of that base and keep expanding from there. So I I think like you wanna be particular in making sure when you're establishing product market fit that you're establishing a really strong fit with a segment of the market, this small segment, hopefully a good small segment, and that that segment is then something you can use to grow into other segments of the market, uh, other areas of the market. Uh, So do something really well establish a ton of value for some group of people uh, and then expand out from there, as opposed to the approach of like, we'll have a lot of people that kind of like or like different things, parts of the product. So uh, that that's kind of one thing I would emphasize.
2: Yeah, so iterating often is a, another really interesting thing and an important thing to do when you're on the path to product market fit. And it goes back to a lot of the other ideas that we were discussing here, right? Like your one of your your biggest tasks is going to be to question every assumption that you've got every learning that you develop and that brings you some success, you will eventually have to either make it a little bit better by having a hypothesis of how it can be better, trying it out and rolling it back if it doesn't work or doubling down on it if it does. And you're going to do this numerous times um, on the journey to your initial product market fit. And then um, in a different way with, with call it higher stakes, but every uh, every cycle thereafter and the more you can do this and the more you realize that it's an ongoing process I think the higher chance of success as you get through this
1: yeah I would say you know adding on to that last point real quick is like if you're doing a startup uh, whether you're in a product or marketing side one of the founders or whatever you know iterating experimenting learning that should be what gets you up right that that's sh- that should be part of who you are if it's not part of who you are, Then maybe you don't want to be at an early stage startup. That iteration is just so important uh, in launching new products, Um, and then it leads to this whole idea of, you know, this being a company wide effort. I mean, I talked about this earlier. Not only. Uh, this gathering Is gathering this information, is iterating across the different departments important? But when you finally do get it right, it has impact on all these different departments and has impact on marketing, it has impact on sales, products easier, sales is easier, uh, marketing is easier, you're getting more feedback, customer success, uh, it's easier getting those renewals. Um, you know, support calls are generally more pleasant, even though they might have problems Half of them are also saying, oh, by the way, I really love X, Y, and Z. Things get a lot easier. But you need to instill this mentality that getting this feedback, getting this information and helping to establish product marketing fit is not just the job of a product manager or the product team or engineering or what have you. It's a a company-wide effort. And the more people are involved in the process, the more everyone's going to see the benefit of the outcome of it too.
0: Eric and Mike, thanks for that great session. It's great to hear them talk about how product market fit is not a myth and what startups should be thinking about. And how cool is it that they used falling in love as an analogy for customer interest? I haven't heard that before. And if you like this episode, help us grow. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. Stay safe and hungry.